So we are in our Advent series. Advent just means coming, and it's specifically a reference to the first coming of Jesus Christ. So we're in our Advent series, and this morning we're going to open up to the Gospel of John and read John chapter 1. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open it up. If you don't have a Bible, the verses will show on the screens above my head, and I'll read that along with you. While you are opening, though, I, <clears throat> I wanted to take a minute and just thank you for the generous gift that you donated for the Pastor's Appreciation Sunday. You know, you, as pastors, we're, we're standing down front there and we're listening as, as Aaron is sharing these, these words of honor, and we receive the gift from you, and, and we do all that knowing, very aware that, that many pastors will never enjoy the kind of appreciation, the kind of affection, the kind of loving generosity that we, that we encounter from the people of, of Four Oaks. And I'm just so grateful that, that we do, and I didn't want to miss the opportunity to to just look at you and say thank you. Thank you very much. John chapter 1. Title this morning's message is Home for Christmas? Question mark. Home for Christmas? Question mark. I'm going to read beginning in verse 9 through 14a. The true light, which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, not of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Let's pray. Lord, this passage is packed full of so much truth and significance, that we turn to you recognizing that we need your help, we need the inspiration of your spirit, we need the illumination that only you can give to comprehend the truth that's in your word. So we pray that you would grant us that now. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. We begin this morning with a question. What comes to your mind when you hear the word home? What comes to your mind when you hear the word home? Is it a place? Maybe a group of people? Perhaps you think back to the house you grew up in, or, or maybe it's embodied for you in a single person. You know, Billy Joel once sang, I never had a place that I could call my very own 
But that's all right, my love, he sang, because you're my home. Now, Billy probably sang that better than he lived it. But I think that's probably true of all of us, isn't it? So I return to the question, what comes to your mind when you think of the word home? Three years ago, my family and I left Pennsylvania. Pennsylvania is a state that I grew up in, lived there for 53 years. We left there to come to Tallahassee and grateful to God that we did. But I feel a deep attachment to the state of Pennsylvania, the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania, I should say. My mother is there. She's widowed in her 80s, although you didn't hear her age from me. Um, Brothers and sisters are there. I've got cousins there and aunts and uncles. My Uncle Lou just, in fact, passed away about a month ago. His parents immigrated from Italy, and my Uncle Lou held this kind of constitutional conviction that home meant food, wine, and parties. And so I I have many memories on a Saturday night where we would get into our jammies, and we would get into the car, and we would drive over to Uncle Lou's house, and then other family members who were spread throughout the Pittsburgh area would all converge on Uncle Lou's house, and the house would just swell with family. And as soon as we walked in the door, the adults would go downstairs and the children would go into the living room, almost as if there were assigned places for everybody, and it was all prearranged and predetermined. But then as the wine began to flow, the adults kind of reached a level of, let's call it relaxed detachment. And so the children were allowed to come downstairs to be with the adults. And if all of the stars aligned correctly, my Uncle Lou would break out his accordion. And he would begin to play, and people would begin to sing, and they would begin to dance, and the kids would just sit there marveling that adults could have so much fun. And so when I hear the word home, I sometimes think of accordions and Uncle Lou. How about you? What do you think about? What comes to your mind when you hear that word home? One of the things that's so astonishing about this passage is is that it connects home to Christmas. But not in the way you think, not in the way that any of us anticipate, not in the I'll be home for Christmas sense, or not in the final scene of It's a Wonderful Life sense where George Bailey stands there with his family, his friends, they're all around him, and his brother Harry screams out and gives a toast to George, the richest man in town. Not in that sense. Not even in the sense that Right now, in this week, there's going to be airlines that are jammed with people. The highways are going to be jammed with people. Everybody searching, everybody reaching, everybody moving to just get a slice of home. You know, it's ironic that Christmas has come to represent the very essence of what it means to come home. And I say that because fixed near the center of Christmas is the Savior 
leaving home. The Savior leaving home. And that really forms my first point. I think I want to say that first point this way. That Christmas means Christ left heaven. Christ left heaven. John expresses it this way in verse 9. He said, The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. Verse 11, he said, He came to his own And his own people did not receive him. Verse 14, he said, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And so it's like a great house with different windows, and we're looking in these different windows, but it all comes around to the fact that these passages often take a very less conventional tone or less conventional take on what Christmas is really about. In other words, to be born of a woman, Christ had to leave his heavenly home. He had to leave it. And we don't tend to think about this very much. Because really, for most of us, Christmas starts with, you know, what? A, a stable and some wise men and some shepherds. And, and there's nothing wrong with that. But I think we have to grapple with the reality in order to appreciate what God has really accomplished in Christmas. We have to comprehend the reality that before Christ came, there was a lot going on in heaven. Before Christ came, Jesus Christ had this infinite experience of family, which to us is utterly incomprehensible. There was a Father. He was the Son. The Holy Spirit was present also. Three persons, altogether God, the Trinity. The Father, Son, the Holy Spirit coexisting in community, coexisting in this relationship with one another where there was a sense where joyful delight defined every second of every moment, of every hour, of every day for eternity. And even within that, the overarching impulse, the thing that most defined them, the impulse that pervaded their existence, the thing that went to their very being was this idea of love, that constant sense of acceptance, that eternal affection that sparked their delight, one between the other, the persons of the Godhead, just taking delight in one another because they loved one another. You know, next week, when we gather together with family, undoubtedly it's going to be another fresh reminder that Family is not what it could be. It's not what it could be. I mean, families have tensions. We have conflict. We have, we have skeletons in the closet that don't want to remain in the closet. They just jump out sometimes in family outings. Have you ever had that happen? Because the reality is that when families gather, sin spills out, doesn't it? Here's what I want you to think about Jesus never experienced that. Jesus experienced none of that. Among the Godhead, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, there was this perfect love. There was this incredible honor, one between the other. There was this eternal affection that they exchanged constantly. There was this unstoppable affirmation and affinity that they had for one another. You know, Lewis's series on Narnia, when the White Witch cast the spell on Narnia, it's described as Narnia being converted into a place that was always winter, never Christmas. 
with the Trinity, every second is Christmas morning. Every second is the delight that comes with Christmas morning. Now, okay, I created that picture because I wanted you to understand exactly what it meant of what the Trinity had together before Christ became man, because then, recognizing that's what's going on, the inconceivable happens. God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, God decides to share the love that they enjoy together with the beings they created. They decide to share that love with these beings, us. This is how John talks about it in a different part of John, John chapter 3.16. You might be familiar with this passage. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever should believe in him should not perish but have eternal life. But the love of God, we have to remember that the love of God represents one almost incomprehensible step. And that means that the son would leave heaven, that the son would leave heaven and he would change his experience with the Godhead in the way that he experienced it prior to the incarnation. He would change his experience with the family, Philippians chapter 2. Although he existed in the form of God, he did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a man. He emptied himself. That irrepressible glory that he had before, before he became man, he emptied himself of that. The unbreakable communion that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit had, the, the, there was an emptying of that. The fellowship that Christ had outside of the fallenness of earth, he emptied himself of that. He left heaven to come to earth. You know, I'm really grateful that Christmas is built around families. You know, we decorate the house and we, we pull the family together and we exchange gifts. And there's a sense where it's about returning home. But Christmas is really about God leaving home. It's about God leaving home. It's about God leaving home and arriving to earth as an immigrant. Dependent, naked, poor, stuffed into a manger. I mean, I'm not looking to spark a riot here, but if we really wanted to reproduce the experience of Christmas in the way that it was originally experienced, we would not be with family, we would leave our family. We would not be going to a place of safety, we would be going to a place of great insecurity. We would not relocate to, 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 to be with the people that we love the most. We would relocate to a foreign land, away from everything we delight in, so that we could arrive at a place where nobody wanted us to be, and somebody could stand there and look us in the eyes and say, hey, there's no room at the inn. Which leads us to our second point. That Christmas means Christ's rejection. Now imagine this for a second. Imagine that you're arriving at your family house next week your family's house next week, and your arms are filled with gifts, and your heart is filled with anticipation, and there's love that's just spilling over from your soul. And they open the door, and this is what you hear them say. We don't know you. We don't want you. We don't love you. You have no place here. 
And you know what? Just, just as an aside, for some of you, that's frightening close to what you feel about the Christmas holidays. Because, I mean, to pick up the phrase we used earlier, what comes to your mind when you think of home is broken home. It's an unloving home. Maybe it's even abusive home. You know, Dorothy really got it right when she clicked her heels three times and she said, there's no place like home. In other words, there's really no place on earth that wields more power over our lives than home. I mean, the home possesses this unbelievable power to knot our stomach, to tie our stomach in knots with memories of anger, memories of conflict, of regret, of shame. To pile upon us a heap of pain because of the way that we have been treated by other people. Because of the way that we have been treated by sinners. Now listen, this is what we need to hear about this. This is part of the Christmas message. And this is what I announced to you this morning. That Christmas is an annual reminder that there is one person in the universe who can come down and can look you in the eye and can say to you, I get it. I understand why you feel the way you feel. In fact, let's just listen to how it's said in John chapter 1, verse 10. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. Look at verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. I mean, we tend to sanitize the Christmas story. You know what I mean? We kind of we just want to strip it down until it's about snowflakes and it's about angels and it's just about the best, most antiseptic side of what Christmas can be. But the Christmas story starts in a much different way than we typically talk about. The Christmas story starts with a pregnant virgin, an unwed mother, Engaged to a guy who wants to dump her because he doesn't understand what's going on. I mean, you know life is going to be hard when the government, Herod, commits genocide just to kill you. You know life is going to be bad. Jesus is from Nazareth. I I mean, that's hardly a thriving metropolis. There may have been maybe 500 residents in Nazareth back then. We're talking about Jesus. We're talking about the guy who was hunted as a child. He was born into obscurity. He was surrounded by poverty. Eventually, his best friends would deny him and betray him and back away from him. See, for us, the experience of rejection, rejection is an experience we have. In other words, it may be repeated. It may happen many different times in life, and it may last But it always lifts. It always lifts. But but for Jesus, it was dramatically different. For Jesus, rejection was a destiny he was called to fulfill. I mean, again, verse 11. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Again, it's not like he came to strangers. 
you know, we, we all can be rejected by people that don't know us. Maybe you have that client at work and they don't know you, but they're judging you. Or, or maybe there's somebody on the internet that hates you, but they don't really know you and they're saying mean things about you. He came to his own. He came to his people. He came to his family. Do you have family members that are rejecting you? There is one this Christmas who bows down and looks you in the eye and says to you, I get it. I understand. See, Jesus' birth set him on a course where he would ultimately have an entire city. I mean, he would ultimately have an entire nation. He would have all of humanity screaming these two words, crucify him, crucify him. And then, as if that's not bad enough, as if having the whole world turning their back on him is not enough, in the final gasp from his mouth, the Father himself turns away from him. The Father himself withdraws from him. It's why Christ himself pants these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You too, after everyone, after everything, you too, oh God. This is how the prophet Isaiah describes life after the manger for Jesus. Quote, he had no form or majesty that we should look upon him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. I mean, one Christmas carol sings, what child is this? Oh my goodness. This is, this is a child who was born to a life of rejection. And when we hear that, we tend to think, you know, that's terrible. I can't believe that happened. I can't believe they did that to Jesus. You know, we hear the Christmas story, and in the Christmas story, there's always these good characters like the shepherd and the wise men, and there's these bad characters like Herod and the Romans and the innkeeper, and we always identify with the good people in in the Christmas story. We want to be the good people. But in reality, Scripture defines our role a little differently. When the disciples fled Jesus Christ, when the Pharisees denounced Jesus Christ, when their citizens spit on Jesus, when the Romans nailed Jesus to the cross, they represent us. We're not distant from them somehow psychologically, emotional, theologically. No. They're us. It's why John says he came to his own people and his own people didn't receive him. In fact, his own people crucified him. See, Christmas introduces a a foreign and I would say a rather provocative thought. And that is that we may think we love this child, but we're going to reject him as a man. The world may think they love this child because he's so cute and kids are so cute and 
Dustin's kid was so cute. And, you know, they're, they just, there's something about that elicits something from our heart. But we're going to despise him as a man. We're going to reject him as a man. And that's our biggest problem as human beings. It's not necessarily the rejection that we have received. It's the rejection that we have imposed upon the Savior. I mean, we all have things from the past that we're ashamed of. I know I do. My goodness. Times of people have rejected us. But our shame and our rejection, though it is bad and though it is significant, is second to what we heaped upon Jesus Christ at the cross. Because the reality of life is that baby did not remain in a manger. That baby grew up to be a man, to be a man who was mocked, to be a man who was flogged, a man who was spit upon and stripped naked and nailed to the cross. And it wasn't just a story in history that we're completely detached from. It was a story in history that we are represented. And in fact, while he was being crucified up there upon a cross, we were down at the bottom holding the nails. There's a great hymn by Horatio Benar where he says, "'Twas I that shed that sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. And here's the mind-blowing thing. Here's the amazing thing about all of that. Because unbeknownst to the entire world that was holding the nails of which we are included, there was this eternal plan that was unfolding. There was this deeper magic that nobody knew about. There was this amazing love that was being poured out from God to the world where at a pivotal moment, He was taking our shame and our rejection and our contempt and our uncleanness, and our sin. And as the pure Lamb of God, He was receiving in His body the wrath that we deserved. He was receiving every sin, every lie, everything, every lustful thought that we've ever had. He was receiving the just penalty for that upon His body so that the power of rejection would be forever broken over us. So that somehow we reject him and he loves us so much that he turns that so that the power of rejection is broken over us so that we no longer need to be defined by the ways we were rejected. What love is this? And part of what that means is that family can mean something different. That the words mom and dad can be redeemed that the idea of home could mean something new. Which leads us to our last point, and that is that Christmas means that we can go home. Christmas means that we can go home because this passage now moves to an amazing promise of of a new family and a new home. Look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So to all who have received him, who put their trust in what Christ has done, he gave this right to be cleansed, this right to be washed, to be adopted, to be grafted in, this right to have a new home. In fact, if you really want to understand the ultimate end of Christmas, one way to understand it would be that Christ left heaven to bring us home for the glory of God. Christ left heaven to take us home, that God might be glorified. And you know, there's something buried very deep in our being that aches for this. There's this sense where the anticipation of Christmas calls something forth from our hearts. The anticipation and the expectation of Christmas, we always build it up to a place where it never truly delivers as advertised. There's a sense where we're all, we're all that kid on Christmas, you know, Christmas morning who just, you, you get the first gift and they thrill over the first gift and they rip it apart almost like a ninja and they open it up, they see what it is, they toss it aside, they move to the next gift. And so the whole morning is like just moving from gift to gift, never being fully satisfied in the one, never being able to ponder over the one, enjoy the one, because there's always something better, there's always something more, there's always some other experience we need to move on to. And so the reality of the gift exchange on Christmas or the dinner that we share or the family time, there is this sense, and we all feel it, that it never truly lives up to the anticipation that we had for it. And that in Christmas, we have this phenomenon where Christmas surfaces this kind of ache within, a kind of homesickness. Verse 13 tells us of this supernatural birth that we go through where we're born not of blood, that's natural birth, nor of the will of our flesh. We can't will ourselves to be born again, nor of the will of man, but of God. So we have the supernatural birth where God makes us his kids. And so we begin to ache to be at home with our father. We want to be there. We feel that. We have this inner radar now that exists. It's kind of a, a sonar that, that, that picks up something from the other land. Our heart pings you know, each day because we hear something, can't discern exactly what it is, but we know there's something coming that's reminding us, you know what, you're just experiencing the shadow right now, but there's a substance that lies far off that you're eventually you're going to arrive to, but you don't have it yet. And yes, coming to faith, yes, that certainly is a kind of homecoming. But that faith lives out in a very fallen world, in a very broken place where our families are broken, where we still experience sin and pain. And so we live homesick for the place that we were created for. Our permanent home with our Father. And so Christmas is funny because on one hand, it's, it, it's delightful when we get to see family and friends, but it also stirs this kind of homesickness that we have. You know, the Portuguese language has a word. It's not easily 
translatable, but the word itself is called sudade. And sudade is like a, a deeply emotional state of nostalgia. Think of nostalgia times a hundred. It's a profound longing for something that remains absent. It's, it's like that empty feeling that we might have when a family member moves away and we know we're never going to see them again, but they're still alive. And what happens each and every year is that Christmas tugs at Sudade within our soul. It tugs at it. It pokes at it. And we hear it reinforced, chestnuts roasting on an open fire, and these are a few of my favorite things, and I'm going to have a blue Christmas without you. And there's this, this vision that's being created where everything should be right, everything should be perfect. This is just what we were created for. But each Christmas, each year, we, we reach for something. We reach to satisfy this deep longing through a home only to discover that that home will not ultimately satisfy us. That our earthly family, as much as we love them and as much as we appreciate what God has done in our life, they can't deliver what only God can deliver to us. That ultimately we were made for another home. And so Christmas becomes, each year it's kind of installed in the annual calendar as something that, that becomes the shadow, but not the substance. It's an annual sign fixed in the year that, that reminds us that, yes, Christ left heaven, but he left heaven to take us home. He left heaven to take us home. But we're not there yet. We're not there yet. And I should probably add that Christmas is not, is not just about us going home. It's also about us spreading the news that there is another home. That, as verse 9 put it, there is a light that has come. That God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That there is hope beyond the fallenness and the brokenness in families in this world and in this life. Because I think Christians get confused on this. I, you know, I think for a lot of us, we think home is this exclusive place of identity and belonging. And that's the only reason that the home and the family exists, as if the home and the family are an end in and of themselves. And ultimately, when we begin walking down that road, it creates kind of insulated children and an idolatry of the family. The family moves to the center. God kind of gets pushed off to the side. But in a broken world, we can't roll that way. In a broken world, that's not how God positions the family. In a broken world, a family is certainly supposed to be a place of identity, but it's supposed to be a place of deployment as well, where we, where we, are, we are fortifying one another that we might go back into a broken world. We're fortifying one another that we might declare the love of God, that we have to go back into war. My oldest son is an army officer. He's been deployed to Afghanistan four different times. 
After his first deployment in Afghanistan, we traveled down to Fort Campbell to be there when he, he returned. And it's, it's an incredible memory that we share as a family because it all happens in the middle of the night and you drive on to the base and then they put you on the bus and you drive in this bus for 20, 30 minutes out into the middle of nowhere. And as you're driving out of the middle of nowhere, there's this small glow that grows brighter and brighter because what it is, is it's, an, it's, a, it's a hangar, a gigantic hangar. And as you come closer to the hangar out in the middle of nowhere that has landing strips all around it, you hear this music that's throbbing and it's filled with people. And you walk inside the hangar and there is a band playing and there are booths set up and it's just this party kind of carnival atmosphere that just gets everybody excited about what's going on. And then as the aircraft carrying your son or your daughter begins to get close, they come on the announcement speaker and they begin to announce, your soldier is 45 minutes away. Your soldier is 30 minutes away. And at the 15-minute mark, they, they march you outside and they put you in an area and the, and the aircraft lands and it taxis all the way to the point where it's only about 10 yards away and the door is thrown open and the, the stairs are pushed over and these soldiers begin to get off the aircraft and they're fresh out of the field. And so they have their, they have their weapons, they have their ammunition, they look like they have, they're muddy and, and everything. And they're walking past you, but you can't get close to them because there's something that separates you and them. They're not allowed to have any contact with you because they still have weapons and and ammunition. They're still very live. And so then they turn everybody around and they put them back in the hangar. And the hangar is set up so that there's, there's seating on both sides like a gymnasium. And you sit down. And about five minutes later, the national anthem begins and the hangar doors open. And in perfect formation marches the soldiers into the hangar as everybody is cheering and, and so grateful to God. In our case, just grateful to God because your child is safe. Your child is, is here. Your child is, is home. But there's a whole other reality about that where your child is still a soldier And your child is going to go back. And so you have this experience of home, but you have it knowing that there's still a war out there. And there's still something else that makes a claim upon his life and upon his time and upon his affections. And there is this very real reality that where as long as we live in a world at war, we go home but we have to go back out and fight for the future of other people that don't yet know the Lord, other people that don't yet know the love of God. So my hope for all of us is to, and my hope in this message is to prepare our heart to enjoy home this week, but also to go home this week preparing to fight for the future of some of the family members that you love, going home with the love of God and preparing to open up your mouth as God gives opportunity. You know, I started this message asking the question, what comes to your mind when you hear the word home? 
And I guess I want to I pastor you for a moment and just say that don't be surprised next weekend and this coming week if you feel both homesick and at home at the same time. If you feel both anticipation and disappointment with the experience that you're having because it's the tension that we live in each and every Christmas. Because what we have on earth here reflects a heavenly reality, but we almost wake up every morning remembering that we are not home yet. And so I pray you will move through this week, whether it's a week of joy for you or a week of sadness, whether it's a a week of reunion for you with family or maybe a week of pain, I pray you would move through it remembering and sharing that essential Christmas reality that Christ left heaven to take us home. Let's pray.